giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel. And I'm your other host, Lindsay Christensen. And today we're back with Alistair McLean Foreman, CEO of Takeometrics. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. Hello. So you kind of have a unique perspective on how e-commerce is performing right now due to COVID. What have you been seeing in general in the e-commerce world? Yes, it's a very interesting question and uh, very relevant timing-wise, of course. It's really difficult, right? I mean, at, at the end of the day, and I've told this to our team, it's just very important for us to be very empathetic as a company. It's one of our company values, empathy. And we just have to recognize that there are people in very different situations, and that might be in different industries, different places around the country, different places around the world. And I think the same is for within our customer base. For example, we've got some businesses that are in the cleaning supply space and really going absolutely gangbusters. I mean, they've really had an amazing lift in in demand and performance. On the other hand, you know, we've got customers that provide wedding supplies as one example, and it's just devastating. So the interesting perspective we have is we've got thousands of customers and we represent a pretty sizable chunk of Amazon's overall volume. And now we're working with Walmart. And so we see a lot of their data too. And it's across industries and across product types. On average, what I can tell you is that April was tricky because you started to see the impact of some of the supply chain stuff. And you know, when we see in the news that Amazon, Facebook, and these big tech companies are doing really, really well, I think that depends on what product types and some of the smaller companies on the supply chain side, not in the essentials category, found it really hard to get their inventory in. That's thankfully turning around now. So it's varied. I think at the, in the big picture, there's going to be a really good tailwind. Um, so we're very fortunate and we're going to become more valuable for our customers. More and more brands are going to want to go online. Do you know off the top of your head what the percentage of retail in the US is online now? Right. Um, well, what's amazing is it used to be, and this is you know an estimate of around 11 mm-hmm. to 12% uh, when we started the year. And, you know, that's gone up to 25 to 30% are the estimates that, that we're seeing in the industry. And of course, in certain categories, the big question is, how much will that stick? And mm-hmm. um, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, momentum. I think the sound bites that I found interesting were people sort of comparing this to the evolution that we started to think through over 2020 to 2030 and we've sort of jumped half a decade or even more than that in a few months. And I can believe that based on some of the data that we're seeing. Right. But it, but it's still to be determined how it sticks after this is all over. Yeah. I think I just sort of keep coming back to the point of the segmentation and you know how you look at those big statistics. For example, we're seeing a lot of smaller businesses come online, and those are the ones that right. are more nimble. If you're a big brand and you're using Amazon as one of many almost retail channels, right? Like there's a there's a different business model for a larger brand that might be selling to big box retail and Amazon's just one account. I think they're finding it harder to adjust. 
Shopify's numbers have gone through the roof and a lot of it is driven around the SMBs who can act quickly. And then Facebook released their, their shops platform. That was a big announcement only a week ago. Yeah, I know in my local area, you can see it too as some stores, particularly some restaurants that I noticed around me, initially just completely closed. I think they weren't sure how long it was going to last for, but also, you know, weren't set up to sell online. And it did, it took them several weeks to both figure out how to do it and then to get the infrastructure in place to do it. For some companies, particularly coming to mind, there's a restaurant here who their whole thing is a very small restaurant, takes no reservations. It's a ramen place. Uh, They never did delivery before. You know, they just opened last week for the first time as they figured out to even how to even do that because their Mm -hmm. whole thing was sort of very low volume business. And I can imagine it was a consideration for them. Well, if we open up to online ordering and we we could be easily overwhelmed. And so they actually had to build into their system throttling where they only take a certain number of orders and their online store builds a queue of people. When the queue is filled, they turn, they turn it off, for example. So there's these companies out there that are having to modify. And I mean, I'm sure there's lots of little examples like that, but in the big picture, it will be very interesting to see what a company like that does a year from now when they can go back to quote unquote normal, whether they keep this new system going or not. I totally agree. I think what's fortunate for us is, you know, we were part of what we think is a a leading edge of evolution. You know, this started with our background, you know, me being one of the first third party sellers on Amazon, that sales motion to consumers, you know, really has evolved over the last 10 to 15 years and things have just sped up. I think what you're describing on, let's say, the restaurant side is a really daunting task to think through, you know, do we evolve into that? You know, Amazon is a very disruptive force in retail period, and we're just seeing more percentage shift to to that area, which is where we spend most of our time, you know, building and thinking through. So it is really exciting from that perspective. I mean, it feels like, you know, we've hit the sort of fast forward button on something that we were already doing. It is exciting to see from our customer standpoint, you know, we have some really interesting customers like uh, uh, Valvoline, uh, you know, a big, big company just came on board with Walmart. And who would have thought that you would be talking to Valvoline as a brand selling direct to consumer through Walmart online? And uh, then also talking to them about Amazon. And I think that's just super exciting to us. Uh, You know, we think the future of retail looks like it does now. And it's sped up. And what is uh, Valvoline? Uh, Valvoline is a huge oil company, basically. Sort of also zone. And I believe they operate gas stations as well. So sort of more of an industrial oil company. That, of course, does service consumers, but not really a company that you would think of as a brand going direct to consumer versus, you know, obviously a lot of apparel companies and the stuff you see on Instagram. But, you know, this is selling oil. And they're selling oil through Walmart. Yeah, like motor oil for your car, that kind of oil. Interesting. 
Yeah. And then maybe accessories too, you know, just thinking right. about, you know, some of the pivots that they're doing. So that that's an interesting one that sort of the direct consumer angle is is the biggest change I think that's occurring. And that was talked about a lot over the last 10 years. And, you know, we've seen tremendous companies evolve, cutting out the retail step. And that's where I think it's going to be amplified, that efficiency directly to the consumer through these platforms like Amazon and Walmart. Mm. So you have a mix of customers, some doing extremely well, some really hurting. How has that impacted Takeometrics revenue this year? It's interesting because our company has gone through this continual question of who is your ideal customer? And as I've spent more and more time building the business and thinking through how we're going to grow and actually looking at what's happening in software in general, I think that's a little bit of a trick question because when you look at SaaS companies and you look at the successful ones, how exciting it is that they've gone after multiple segments at the same time. Case in point, look at Zoom. Zoom's an incredible success story that is almost consumer-like. You know, my daughters are using it to do their gymnastics classes, for example, yet it's been used by huge corporations. And at a time like this, it's absolutely taken off on the SMB side, but it also does grow on the enterprise side. And there are more and more of these stories around, you know, this sort of consumerization of enterprise software across multiple segments. And I think that's the opportunity to think about building a really successful business these days with SaaS. How can you use different go-to-market strategies to hit multiple segments at once? And the reason I'm using this to answer your question is what we've seen is a growth in certain areas, certain pockets, for example, the Walmart business and also SMB, whilst it's taken a little bit more time for the bigger brands to adjust. That's the same that's happening with Shopify. They've got millions of small businesses, well, not quite millions, plural, but they have over a million small businesses that have accelerated during coronavirus. And what would Shopify look like if they were just restricted to enterprise? What would Zoom look like if they chose only to service big corporations? And because they've got this product-led model with self-service on the low end, which is almost like a consumer piece of software, and then they've got the sales teams that engage at the bigger end at the same time, I think it allows you to be really flexible. So I, I find that really interesting, and that's what we're aiming for. It's sort of counterintuitive. I think a lot of people say startups run a risk of not being focused, but you know I think there's an opportunity to be more than one with just a lot of disciplined planning and execution if you've got a strong product. What does sales at Takeometrics look like? When we first started... We were very SMB oriented. We were selling to people very similar to my background who were the really Amazon resellers. So these were businesses that were buying branded products from manufacturers and, and selling them to consumers through Amazon. What we did there is we didn't have a self-service motion and we had a really small sales team that I ran and uh, I was the first salesperson and, you know, we grew pretty slowly. 
Then when we launched our more scaled advertising product that uh, actually, Chad, you know, you helped significantly with. Um, so thank you for that. It created a whole new set of opportunities for how we could go to market. And we ended up launching a free trial, which allowed us to get a much more streamlined funnel and let smaller customers in at a much lower cost. And that was uh, two and a half years ago, nearly three years ago. And you know what we've done is we've had to adapt and think through where our salespeople used in that new type of funnel. And I definitely don't think we've got it quite right yet and we've evolved over time. So what was really interesting in 2019, I sort of fired myself as the sales leader and brought in an experienced sales leader who was more oriented to selling to bigger companies. And there was a lot of risk in that. You know, why are we trying to sell to the big guys? What are their needs? Are they going to be different? Um, what are we going to do about branding? You know, how can we offer the software to small customers and big customers? But that went very, very well. And we ended up getting a huge growth in 2019. Uh, we grew over 100% as a result of bringing the product up market. You know, we then evolved that into more of a sales team and bringing in experienced sales reps who really know how to do outbound sales, how to talk to bigger prospects. But we've maintained the self-service and segmented look at some of the SMB volume as well. So I'd say the answer is that it's evolved significantly as the product's evolved and then our sort of target customer has evolved as well. Does sales get involved in the self-service customers at any step of the journey or is it pretty much low touch? So I think we made some mistakes where we felt that the product wasn't strong enough and therefore we wanted to map sales reps to the leads. We did the same sort of thing on the customer success side. And you can have a dangerous path there because you can start to miss the ultimate focus and mission statement for what you're trying to achieve by just plugging gaps in the product with humans. And we learned from that and we've made some changes and we brought a really strong chief product officer in last year. And our focus now is to have products own that free trial experience, own that onboarding experience with a mission to make that entirely self-service. If you don't do that and you kind of have that owned by sales, you can get some really, really worrying dynamics about who owns what, who should be tr trying to solve it. And then now what we've done is we've said, okay, the, the free trial experience is owned by product, but at a certain size, we can detect your characteristics, for example, size of business, size of Amazon advertising spend, and we are going to map you to a sales rep and, and have them come in at that particular period. But we really learned a lot about trying to get that teamwork right. So it's all about thinking about ownership of who owns the funnel, what are the goals for the teams, how is the segmentation set up, what are the systems in place to create the mappings of the customer types, and we definitely don't have it perfect, and but I think the path that we're on is much better than sort of this hodgepodge uh, that we had when we started to combine product and, and, and sales reps. 
What is it about the large customers that requires a sales rep to be more hands-on? Are there like different kinds of blockers that they're facing in, in getting started? Well, there's a couple of things. I think if you're a bigger company, you know, there could be some practical restrictions. For example, would you want to put your credit card in to sign up? And maybe you can't if you're in a corporate situation. The size of the accounts, the average revenue per customer is a lot higher, which is interesting on Amazon. You've got, you know, multiple hundred million dollar businesses on Amazon, you know, huge, huge corporations. And you've got, you know, you or I could start an Amazon store right now, uh, today and get on board right away. So you've got different just scale in terms of revenue and just some of the practical components of how how do those bigger companies buy. So generally, the bigger companies want to buy with a human sales process. The complexity of the account is also different. So there could be some different requirements, which is where we've added a services layer as well. So you know, for example, you might want to run more advanced advertising that is not actually in the Amazon APIs. That means we can't build product for it yet. And, you know, that's what you want as a customer. So we looked at all of that from a very customer facing perspective. And it was really clear that bigger customers want to talk to a sales rep. They also want slightly different things and they want slightly different service as well. So we've combined SaaS plus services in a package that seems to be working really, really well because you've got the software doing the heavy lifting, but you've got the humans providing this sort of strategic support. And if you're a big advertiser on Amazon and you're a big brand trying to figure out how to navigate through coronavirus, for example, you want that guidance. You want someone to engage with. And then you mentioned outbound earlier. So does that mean that the sales team is getting the things that are escalated out of the regular signups because of the size of them? And then they're also identifying and going after potential bits? That's right. Yes. So that's more of an ABM or account-based marketing model where you know you might be targeting a type of company at scale versus pure lead generation that would try and optimize for the number of free trials through the product itself. So yes, you know, it's that almost those three motions. You've got self-service, touchless, free trial, inbound sales where the leads are coming to you either by being mapped to a free trial or MQLs. So we do a lot of webinars and a lot of content So those would be sort of inbound leads coming into a system and we use HubSpot for that. And then there's sort of pure outbound sales, which is sort of an enterprise level team that's uh, identifying big accounts and running different types of strategies in order to engage with them. And, you know, there's some really good examples of this being very successful. Uh, Datadog, a company that you might be familiar with that had an incredible IPO last year, has those three sales motions and I think they grew to 300 million in ARR at about 8,000 customers. And, you know, they're doing that. They're using three different motions ultimately to sell the same software to three different types of customer. You know, an individual that's, you know, needing cloud monitoring tools or a huge corporation on the higher end. AWS themselves, if you go to their website, you know, you can sign up self-service, but I think, you know, they also sell huge contracts and there's a sales team behind that. 
Um, so again, it comes back to this sort of how do you talk to the different sizes of customer, but through really product enabling a lot of it. Two questions I'm interested in. How big is your sales team and how are they organized? So if we take the sales team concept of having the leads and free trials mapped based on size, that's exactly how we organize the sales team. So we've thought about what are the different sizes of accounts and we've mapped that to our targets in terms of the size of the market. And I'm happy to share this at a high level. You know, we have what we call enterprise and then emerging and SMB as our segments. And there's one other segment called entrepreneur, which is more of a individual part-time seller. And we, we think about what are the characteristics in terms of the data, in terms of monthly revenue on platforms, monthly advertising spend on platforms. And then we map them to the different sales team or in the smaller SMB sizes and uh, entrepreneurs, they're not mapped to a sales rep at all. And, you know, that's how we organize the team. And then the model just becomes, you know, can they get enough leads? And then what is their quota attainment? And then it's a more traditional sort of a rep-driven capacity model. So that's how we look at the sales team. And depending on which team you're in, your variables would be your quota and then your deal count. If you're doing bigger customers, your deal count would be lower. Um, and those would be the drivers of your quota. In terms of how big our team is, we have 15 or 16 sales reps and they're categorized and, and, and mapped, as I said, in, in, into those different segments. And then they're all led by the person that you said you brought on last year? Yes. You know, we're approximately 130 employees now and hoping to grow quite considerably and that's evolved from November of 2018. I was still managing sales and marketing. So the time frame is not very long. And we had our first sort of head of sales takeover from me. And he had a great run in 2019. And a lot of that focus in 2019 was figuring out, could we sell this product to bigger companies? And we proved that. And, and now we're thinking through how do we add new products like Walmart to it? How do we accelerate as the competition you know, continues to increase? And we're going to release new features. So things get more complicated in terms of product types and scale. So we've started to introduce the director level role. So we have one sales director reporting into John Shea, who's our chief growth officer, and he's effectively our head sales leader. What made you feel like it was the time for you to step back from sales and, and bring on someone in that role? It was something that it was very obvious needed to happen. The question of was who and who do you trust to do that? And it was a long journey to try and find the right type of person. What was interesting about John and you know why we spent time together and it, it was a long courting period it was just very clear that he has proven himself with a playbook that maps to the area that we were wanting to test. And we actually went through a lot of pre-work together. 
you know, I was able to convince him or he was able to take a risk in his career to come and join us. And he was running a large team at his previous uh, employer. So I think it was very important for both of us to almost simulate what this would be like. And we went together and presented our software to various leads. So we almost pre-sold the opportunity and tested. Hmm. And that was really important. I mean, if, if we could do that for every role, I think we would, right? Like, you know, that's one of the toughest things to go through a, an interview. So it was really nice to have that opportunity with John. And that took a lot of the risk away. I think from my perspective, at that time, the company was approaching 100 employees. And, you know, I think it's just wearing multiple hats on my side and, and also recognizing that the employees deserve more. If the mission is really this big, they need an experienced sales leader and not someone like myself who, who's never really done it before. And just listening to their needs to spend more time with the sales team was important. I included them in the interview process and I think that was really important. We had gone perhaps a year with the team telling me that they wish that they had, you know, more guidance, more coaching. So it wasn't sort of an overnight decision. It was something that we all thought through and we were all part of the process. Mm. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, it sounds and maybe this is for me personally too, is like, I'm not a trained salesperson, right? But when I'm talking to someone who is like, you started as a seller, right? <laughs> so you were essentially able to sell to yourself or to who you used to be. Mm -hmm. And once you got outside of that zone, didn't necessarily have the training or, or in your comfort zone for doing that. I think that's right. Yeah, that's very fair. I think also just scaling as well. I mm -hmm. totally agree. Like I'm not, you couldn't compare me to John. And I think I'm just really, I guess, lucky to be in this industry. You know, I, I know that we've, in the first edition of this podcast that we did together, I was telling my story and I didn't know that when I first was an Amazon seller that 17, 18 years later that there would be such a big opportunity. So I think I'm just lucky to be in the right place and have this opportunity. And now it's my duty to shift my thought process to what I can do to be successful and to fulfill the vision for our stakeholders. And that's to find the best possible person in each role. So yes, I have fired myself in products, you know, in sort of the design side, the marketing side, sales, finance. I was doing payroll two years ago. I've slowly sort of fired myself in each role. And uh, it's it's pretty humbling to see the types of people that we've been able to bring in. And they're definitely all better than me. There's no question. <laughs> what makes for a successful sales leader at your stage of company? Hmm, interesting. I think it's a, it really depends on what you're selling and also the size of accounts, the sales motion. What was important for us was to have industry context, going back to what I would call the courting period with John, I mean, we spent time together at major conferences like Internet Retailer Conference because he was working at a company called Crisio. He came in the year after they IPO'd and then scaled up the Boston team to 250 employees. And that's in the ad tech space selling to e-commerce brands. So what we brought in with John was success in scaling a team 
which is very, very difficult in sales. You have to have very disciplined performance management. You have to think through how you're going to measure reps, how you're going to motivate them. It's a very, very tough job because every month starts again. Um, you start from ground zero. And so John's had that experience. But what he also brought was industry-specific experience. So that's where we actually sold our software to leads that he had or at least was very familiar with. And that became you know, a no-brainer in that regard. At the time, I was interviewing folks that were either one-dimensional or the other, you know, either very good sales reps typically or sales leaders, but they didn't have any industry experience. So when we met John and we spent time together, it became, you know, a very good fit. And that makes a big difference because you've got to think through, you know, what is the pitch? How do you craft a team? What I can also say is what we've got with John is a whole team. If you look at our sales team, we have all of the, what I would consider some of the top reps from John's previous team. And that's another third dimension that hiring a great leader can bring, which is talent. So if you've got the experience and the motion itself locked down in in the right type of motion, you've got the industry-specific knowledge of what's the pain that the solution's solving, and then you can also bring the people to do it. You know, that's a pretty good you know, triple threat of value that he brought. And I think one of the reasons we grew very quickly last year. So when we talk about what your team is actually selling when they're talking to potential customers, what is it? And it could be beyond your product. Like, you know, what is the team actually selling? Well, we're lucky to be in this industry because everyone's flying blind. And when I say everyone, these are all of our customers you know, they're on Amazon, they're on Walmart, they, they need to go really quickly and they're just really, really struggling to find out how do they grow. They've all read, like you and I have, that Amazon is going through the roof. They're reading that e-commerce is going from 12% to 25%. In fact, they're being forced to do it now because of, you know, coronavirus. And they just want credibility or to speak to someone credible or engage with a company that they trust. What's so powerful is they don't trust Amazon because Amazon is the one that they pay the fees. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we become that sort of Sherpa. We use that analogy a lot in our training and in our vision, you know, Sherpas that can help people sort of navigate through the the sort of the wilderness to the end, end state. The other analogy would be, you know, we're sh selling shovels in the gold rush and everyone's, you know, <laughs> heading west to strike gold, but they don't know how to do it. And we've got a special type of equipment. So it's those two sort of elements. It's the trust, it's the experience and knowledge. Um, so that's super important. And then it's the tools. It's the type of shovel that you're going to use to dig the gold. And that's where, you know, we show them our data science and we show them the technology itself in certain cases, if they're using a free trial, they're touching that product themselves. They're in the product and they're getting instant gratification. If they're larger, they then they'll engage with a sales rep. So we're selling the playbook of how to execute and then we're giving you the AI to do it and automate it and, and save time and money. So if you try and do what we're doing through the software without us, you could be using a competitor, but you're you're probably spending a lot of time trying to 
tweak and adjust. And our pitch is, you know, we've got this platform that can really automate and save you huge amounts of time and money. You know, our customers typically were doing, you know, millions of bid automations on a daily basis. So our company itself is on the edge of this new wave of technology that we're going to see, which is AI first. You know, the idea that automation and using data science and AI to actually do things without a human that a human couldn't do, that's what we're doing. And you can't get that from Amazon. You can't get that from Walmart. You can only get that from someone you really trust or or try and do it yourself. How does uh, the sales demo factor into your process? I know this can this really varies widely by sales team. Is that something you try to do immediately, or you hold off in the process? Yeah, it's, it, your questions are really good because it's so so <laughs> top of mind right now. You know, my vision is that it's all product, and even if our sales team hear this, I'm happy to tell them that because. <laughs> The standard is so high. Just think through Gmail and the Google Suites or Slack or Zoom or all of the applications, Atlassian, more for the developers listening. The world's bar is so high for product. And if you want to be a successful SaaS company, you have to build an amazing product that can sell itself, period. And in a way, if you could eliminate people entirely, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Because you can use the power of software and you can use the power of democratization of technology through SaaS. I mean, if you could get a million customers on a monthly basis for $5 and do self-service, you know, why wouldn't you do that? And that's what we're sort of aiming for. In reality, you know, there's just a, a gap depending on how complicated your product is. And as I said earlier, you need humans to talk to you at the right stage. We want to raise the bar of the product first. And in our company, all hands, in our, in our mission statements internally, we're really focused on being product-led. We're using that terminology. And that's really, really important. I think that sets a lot of the tone of how you operate. If you don't do that, I think you can start to get some misalignment or there's less of a forcing function within the company. So we've had to just put that stake in the ground and be very consistent. And then the sales team is using the product, you know, coming into a product demo, doing a demo with the software itself. So you can see your own data already in there. Or if they do have sales decks, making sure that they're selling and sort of augmenting what's already in the product. But I mean, there's there's sort of my vision state and where we currently are. And the, the, the tough part is the navigation between that because the product needs time to evolve and get better. I know that ThoughtBot does a lot of um, iteration and, you know, the, you, you have the critical path method and, you know, it's not a linear path to get from A to B and you do have to iterate. If you waited three years to build the perfect product, you wouldn't grow fast enough either. So it's so interesting studying this in terms of how sales has evolved. I think more and more companies are moving towards that product-led model period. You know, hopefully not too repetitive for the listeners here, but I think that's the model that's going to be successful over the next 10 years. And in the way you set up your teams and the way you talk about your vision is super important. What I found is 
it's been hard to manage that, right? Because what is the identity of a sales rep at the company if you put up in the all hands, you're a product-led company the whole time, or you you hear me say what I just said, which is we want product to do all of this. How do you feel if you're the sales leader? But there has to be a consistent commitment to what you want to achieve. Otherwise you get sort of misalignment. So I think that's pretty difficult for us. And I know that that's one of the challenges of leadership when things get more complicated and larger because the incentives for the different teams might not be purely aligned. If on the one hand, you're saying, let's replace all the salespeople with product if we could, yet you, you want that to be sales, sales reps at the same time. I think you alluded earlier to the reason why that is, is that there are some customers who are just never going to be in a position to either do the trial themselves, like their decision-making is a group hierarchical decision-making that you need to navigate if you want them to be your customer. Yeah, totally agree. I think that's true from a leadership and organizational standpoint. You still get that sort of challenge of what are we aiming for? What's the North Star state? And I mean, that's more of the issues that I face in the last year as a CEO and founder, that evolution of getting everyone really aligned. You know, what does product-led really mean? Are you trying to say that, you know, the reps aren't important or, you know, those are the things that become a lot more challenging and where I'm trying my very best and learning on a frequent basis about, you know, that sort of leadership alignment and role clarity is another one, you know, who does what. And I think that's very, very difficult. It's the reason why we're so focused on the product led component is the the notion of scale. You know, there are 4 million Amazon sellers. And if you don't have the ability to bring them in at scale, you're going to be pretty limited in your growth rates. So I think really one of the most powerful things that we've done is to study the market. So when we brought Srini Gadanti from Amazon as our chief product officer, you know, Srini was part of the team at Amazon that built the ad product from 10 million roughly in sales to 15 billion, which it's going to do this year. And he left last year to join us. It was so interesting to see how Amazon does its planning working backwards from a big goal. I think we even touched on this in the first episode of the podcast. Yeah. And that changed a lot because if you want to get to 150 million in ARR and you're just using humans to do it, I mean, you can just put it into an Excel model and you can see what's going to happen. So it's the planning. And we just didn't do that as a startup, you know, pre-funding. We were just trying to figure out, does this even work? Is there a chance here that we can grow? So that's been the most powerful, sharing why to the team. Why is it important to have a free trial? Why is it really important to aim for a no-touch onboarding experience? I think that's a really important lesson, particularly as we you know, made a point of having companies in this journey with us at different stages. You know, Companies go through different stages, and in the beginning, you can do things while you're even just figuring out what your product is or trying to scrape together a business that works. You can do things that don't scale or that don't need to scale because you're just not at the numbers that you are. But there is a point in most companies' journeys where to grow beyond a certain point, you probably do need to start figuring out the ways to automate or to do things differently in a way that can continue to scale. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think what I've been experiencing is the sort of fact that everything is very non-linear, right? Like, so if you started at the beginning and said, look, you're going to have to boot, do everything with SaaS, pure self-service and have no sales reps and no service people, you just might miss the opportunity mm-hmm. entirely. And so you're obviously aiming to be you know, an amazing company that can be completely scalable, but you have to be practical and be willing to go through it in stages to get there. I mean, this is way back now, but Salesforce, I know, went public with a lot of services revenue. And investors at the time were like, well, this isn't a great company because it's got so much in services. But they use that as a stepping stone to evolve. And that's really hard, right, to explain to the team and to sort of step back and maybe to investors. We found it very hard, still find it hard to, you know, work with certain investors or or present our companies to investors because, you know, we're not perfect. So, you know, there are so many different things out there that you can look at, you know, you can listen to the Sasta podcasts, or you can read about all of these amazing unicorn stories on TechCrunch. And they can also, in a way, distort the path, because it is so nonlinear. We have some competitors that we've spoken to that are completely self-service. And, you know, because they haven't gone through that nonlinear path, I think they're finding it harder. So I guess my point there is trying to think through it isn't a straight line to the ultimate state. It's this sort of evolving journey that is so fun. Ultimately, if you if you think through, you know, why this is interesting, you know, we try and share as much of this information to our team so they can enjoy the journey. But I still get messages through our anonymous feedback channel. It's like, hey, I thought we were a SMB focused company. You know, we seem to be selling only to the enterprise companies and then it's not factually correct we're doing both and then that that's sort of the counter to my earlier point which is the focus yeah we'll wait and see what happens but we're, we're trying to do both and i, I think I, I believe in that flexibility versus trying to be restrictive and aim for you know the end state without the journey mm. are your sales folks responsible solely for closing new clients or are they also thinking about how to grow clients? Mm. So that's a really age-old question on SaaS, right? Like who owns upsell? In our case, the sales reps are owning the upsell for the first year, and then it switches over to the services team who can upsell. It really depends on what type of business that you're running. In our case, we've got intrinsic upsell because as the companies grow on our platform, we're getting paid more which is nice and and efficient, but the sales reps are focused and compensated. Actually, and this might be useful because we've got a SaaS business model, it's really important that the sales reps are incentivized to bring in retaining clients. So we actually pay out our commissions over the first year. There are different sales models where the reps could be paid and compensated in the commissions for an entire year in the first month. That's actually more typical, but we really, really wanted to align our reps on retention. So our overall payout to a rep for a deal might be actually higher and they can grow with the brands and the customers that come in. 
And we wanted to do that to incentivize alignment. So, so far that's working quite well. And they're al- and then they're able to upsell during that first year as well. So the sales reps become a really important part of the first year SaaS journey. And that's really, really important, right? Like you see the whole challenges around the unit economics of commissions and CAC, you know, customer acquisition cost versus LTV. You know, that's the most important thing. Can you get that equation right? And that's the sort of a golden rule for scaling a SaaS company, the CAC versus LTV ratio or LCV to CAC ratio. And you incorporate sales team salaries into your CAC? Yes, all of the operations required, including marketing and sales for that CAC. And then on the LTV side, you've got the margins of of the service delivery as well to get a, a, a fuller picture I think that's really a very classic thing that you know all of the VCs look at. And the other part on the LTV, which is much harder for small businesses, which is what I've recognized is even if you think through, like if you Google, how do you calculate LTV? The simplest way to do that is to do one over the monthly churn rate. But on SMB, it's not quite like that in our experience. And I've learned more and more over the last 18 months and continue to learn more, but spending time with the world's top VC companies. I mean, we're talking like Excel, Sequoia, Insight Partners. On SMB, it's very interesting the shape of the churn curve. And what I mean about that is the fact that for SMB, many times it's asymptotic. You might have an average churn rate as high as 10% in the first month. But if the customer sticks over six months, it starts to flatten out. So if you have the right free trial experience, that doesn't matter. And I found even VCs haven't quite understood that principle because you'll get really crushed in the conversation regarding what's your average churn rate on a monthly basis. That doesn't matter really. What matters is the shape of the trend over time. And the more SMB you are, depending on the nature of the product, the more that matters. So there's so much to learn there in terms of how to model it, um, how to present it, that we've been learning. And just the unit economics are really important, right? Like the churn, what does that really mean? Do you, are you measuring churn in the first two months? Are you measuring churn in the free trial experience? I think raising money, having these questions and having very different investors who might or might not have different levels of sophistication was one of the biggest challenges actually, and and probably one of the most stressful challenges because they all have different expectations and I would argue also levels of experience. Hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, definitely. Well, Alistair, thanks for uh, stopping by and and sharing with us. I, I really appreciate how open you've been with sharing everything about sales and well probably not everything about sales and revenue at take metrics but everything we had time for anyway thanks chad it was a pleasure yeah it's an interesting one definitely haven't cracked it but hopefully some uh, useful information shared for the listeners you can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm if you have questions or comments email us at host at giantrobots.fm you can find me on Twitter at Lindsay3D. And me on Twitter at CPytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Avarsky. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. 
ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.